0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Can you believe it? This is episode 50. This is going to be an episode that will mostly be a rebroadcast of an interview I conducted back in 2013 for episode six. I always thought that my interview with psychologist Elizabeth Dunn about money and whether or not it can buy happiness was a great and interesting interview, but it was all the way back then and now there are so many more listeners of the show. It's available in so many more places. I would, uh, I think it just deserves to actually be heard and I'm representing it here, but first for the next, I don't know, six or seven minutes, I need to address some sad news. Um, and I I've already posted about this on the website. I've tweeted about it. I've put it out everywhere, but I know a lot of you actually, you just listened to the podcast. So I need to state it here. And here's the thing I learned this week that a study featured prominently in episode 48 has been retracted and there's a story behind it. And this is the story that episode was all about the power of contact. And it talked about the contact hypothesis, which was first put forth by psychologist Gordon Allport. And you may recall that the final segment of that episode dealt with canvassers in California who had changed people's minds concerning same-sex marriage. They flipped people who were opposed over to being in support. And they had done that after three years of work on their own with millions of dollars behind it, thousands of people involved developing this technique After talking to more than 12,000 strangers on their front doorsteps and this technique, they'd gotten it down to basically a single 22 minute conversation. And at that point they brought in some scientists because they wanted academic validation of their work. Now, all of that work is still amazing. It's still likely that they have something incredible to share with the world, but the first research into it now has to be tossed aside. And here's what happened. Donald Green, he's a political scientist at Columbia University. You heard him in the episode talking about how this came about. He decided to retract the study from the journal Science, where it was published after he discovered his co-author, Michael LaCour, who's a graduate student at UC Berkeley. And he was also in the episode describing his work. LaCour could not produce the survey data on demand, the data that he supposedly used to make the variety of analyses that was detailed in the research. The way the study worked was scientists repeated what the canvassers had done years before in a controlled environment. And by the way, they, they actually did do that. They did repeat it and record it. And it all seemed to work as expected. But LaCour was supposed to follow those people who had their minds changed using surveys. And he was supposed to follow 9,700 people in all and track them for more than a year. It now appears he did not do any of that. And allegedly, also, copied and pasted survey data from another study to appear as if he had. Now, LaCour has not made a statement yet. All of this is going to come out in the wash eventually, but Green has made lots of statements. I also spoke with him on the phone and he told me he was deeply embarrassed by all this. And it seems like he's doing everything he can to set things right. And to me, that's actually a great example of this self correcting mechanism that gives science its power. This all came to light because science was doing what science does replication and replication with an eye on attempting to disconfirm the findings of some original work instead of trying to work to confirm it and science does this all the time when something new is discovered lots of researchers will dogpile on that work and try to pick it apart to make sure it's it's actually worthy of being added to the evidence that helps us make sense of the world according to green Two researchers at UCLA were attempting to replicate the original study, but they couldn't seem to get as many people to agree to fill out the survey as had LaCour. And that made them curious as to how he got 12% of the people to take part when they could only get about 4% in their replication. And this led them to investigate deeper, and they eventually discovered that the survey data was most likely lifted from elsewhere. It was very similar to some previous research data at some previous survey data. And when they brought all this to Green's attention, Green told me that he then asked LaCour for the original uh, survey material and LaCour could not produce it. He said it was accidentally deleted. And then Green asked the software manufacturer that made the software they used for help to prove whether or not it had been deleted. The software people said it looked like it had never been entered at all. And so at this point, Green demanded LaCour retract the study And when LaCour didn't do it, Green took over and made sure that it was. And now Green is taking interviews and talking to people and trying to set the things, uh, you know, straight, trying to explain what's happening to all the people who originally covered the research. And that was a lot of people. Uh, If some people have noted, you know, This American Life did a segment at about the same time We did. So actually their episode came out the day after our episode came out and it was about the same people, same topic, had the same scientists involved, same canvassers. And, you know, we were working on it at about the same time because it had just previously been covered by everyone from the New York times to Buzzfeed. So, Green told me that he was most concerned that this could harm the canvassers and he hopes that doesn't happen because he thinks they do still have something amazing on their hands and it deserves to be researched properly. And that's probably going to happen very soon, maybe even by the same team that discovered the problems in the original research. And I hope it does. So, you know, there you have it. And I hope you, you take away, I'm trying to take away from this, that this really demonstrates how science works. This happens all the time. A study that seems promising has to be deleted from the record for some reason or another and better research has to be done to replace it. And even then when that new research comes out and if it is vetted and it gets uh, past all the scrutiny that will be involved, it will then be replicated and studies will attempt to disprove other elements or fill in gaps. And so what happens is no one study ever stands on its own, even if it passes all those tests. And I know in the past, I've been guilty of presenting research in that way sometimes. And I think, you know, now we all work to avoid it. I'm, I, I was counseled by um, Christopher Shabri and Daniel Simons about how they are often irritated at how studies get presented that way. And, and that you know One study proves something about the world or disproves something. And, you know, that never actually does take place. And I try to say that as much as possible now. No one study is uh, the evidence derived from it is indication of the bigger picture until it is added to the collection. In the end, that evidence derived from that one study is just a tiny pebble on a pile that will hopefully one day become a mountain. And even then, that mountain of evidence, when it graduates, it graduates to be considered a theory, a model of reality that helps us understand the natural world until we have enough information to build an even better model. So that's why science is so powerful. That's why it works because it's never over. It's always coming into greater and greater focus. And that's the way I'm trying to see this right now because it deeply saddens me. I really enjoyed putting that episode together. I put a lot of work into it, months of, uh, you know, interviews, and I just really hate that it has to be exploded in this way. And I've chosen to, uh, retract it. I've put a retraction statement up at the website. You can read that. It has more detail than I've, expressed here. It also has links to the research that led to this discovery. And as far as that episode is concerned, anyone who hears it for the first time going forward when they download it, um, the new version has that segment replaced with a statement pretty much reflecting what I've said here. Although if you know if you are interested in hearing the original version, you can go download that at the website. But anyone hearing it a new or anyone pulling from iTunes or SoundCloud will hear a retracted version. Okay, so there's that. It's, uh, I, and, and here's the thing I have no idea why this happened. It doesn't make any sense. What was going on? I don't know. I just feel so bad for all the people involved. Uh, their worlds are turned upside down way more than mine. And it's just awful. And I don't understand it. I just don't understand it. So I apologize if this has been a little disjointed or, or frantic. I still am processing it and it's just weird. Okay. But it does show that science works. Science will correct itself. Many other schools of thought don't have those uh, mechanisms in place. That's what gives science its power. And we can all learn from that and borrow from it. So we're going to hear from Elizabeth Dunn uh, next, but I think we need to have some sort of palate cleanser in between this long statement and her awesome interview. So you'll hear from her after these messages from our sponsors. I'm such a huge fan of the great courses. You know this if you've listened to any of the previous episodes. I love talking about them. I get a chance to watch the course or listen to it before I talk about it. And this one's a really good one. It's The Art of Critical Decision Making taught by award-winning professor Michael Roberto. And this is a really cool course because it's very prescriptive. It tells you how to do something. It makes you a better person. It helps you level up because he explains how and why framing choices is critical to making great decisions. And he shows you how indecision paralyzes you often because your culture suggests you should just say yes, no, or maybe to something, but there are other options and there are other ways to look at things. There are other ways to derive information from the world so that you make a better decision. And I learned a lot about my own decision-making process and how to improve it. You will too. And it's not just from this, it's from all the other things they they offer. As a lifelong learner, The Great Courses gives me a way to learn about topics that span 500 subjects, science, history, philosophy, from top professors, top experts, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, people you know, people you wish you could take a course from, they offer that. I want you to have this as well. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. What will you get? 80% off eight of their best-selling courses, including this one the art of critical decision-making. This is a limited time. It's only for people listening to this message right now. If it goes away, it goes away for good until the next time we talk about it and it will be different things. You want this, get it now. 80% off. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. thegreatcourses.com slash smart. We have a sponsor here that you're going to just, it's going to kill you how great this is. Casper mattresses, obsessively engineered American made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. Look, when you are ready to actually like be an adult and have things that adults have the big boys and big girls put in their lives to make their lives better because they've reached a place where they can actually sleep on good stuff. You will realize that you need a great mattress. You need a really good one. Because you spend a third of your life sleeping. And why would you not want to spend a third of your life comfortable and happy if you can do that? So Casper brings together two comfy technologies for better nights and brighter days. Latex foam and memory foam. And these mattresses, they have just the right sink, just the right bounce, no matter how you sleep. They're pretty neat. They sent me one. And I am sleeping like I've never slept before. It's the best thing ever. And the good news is, if you want to try this out, but you're not sure... They will deliver it straight to your house, straight to your apartment, wherever you live. And you can try it for a hundred days. You can sleep on this thing for a hundred days to see if you like it. And if you're not happy, they will pick it back up the same way they sent it to you. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. That's pretty cool. And here's the cost, okay? This is great compared to industry averages. It's an outstanding price. $500 for twin size mattress, $950 for a king-size mattress. And now you can get $50 toward any purchase by going to casper.com sosmart so smart. Use the code so smart. You'll get $50 off that price. Terms and conditions apply, but go to casper.com sosmart and use that code so smart to get your 50 bucks. Mm, I'm going I'm to go take a nap. And now we return to our program. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of an interview I did with Elizabeth Dunn back in 2013 in episode six of this podcast. Dunn is a psychologist. She wrote a book with co-author Michael Norton called Happy Money, and that book is all about how we're really bad at predicting what will make us happy in the future, and that inability to do that well also makes us commit to a variety of poor financial decisions, whether it's choosing a career or staying in a job or buying stuff or subscribing to services, we seem to make predictable and very poor choices in all those regards, and those choices often do not lead us to experience more happiness. In the interview, you will hear all about that, her thoughts on the matter, and her advice as to what we should be doing instead. All right, let's repick her brain. Okay, Elizabeth. So you've poured over thousands of studies and personally added to the research and the psychology of spending. I just want to get this out of the way. What does the evidence say? Can money buy happiness?
1: Well, it suggests that money can buy happiness if you spend it right.
0: You write in the book that income has little influence on happiness. And that is something that if you just say, uh, if you just run across that without ever having read any research into that, it will seem preposterous. Um, What does the research have to say about wealth and its relationship to happiness?
1: Well, first off, um, you know, people who say that, you know, money can't buy happiness, you know, money has no relationship with happiness. They're wrong. Money does matter for happiness. There is a relationship. Almost every survey that's ever been conducted anywhere finds that people with more money are happier. It's just that that relationship is really small, and in fact, we've asked people to predict how happy they would be given different levels different uh, levels of income. And what we see is that people overestimate the impact of money on happiness. So money does have some bearing on happiness. It's just that its uh, effect on happiness is surprisingly small, and in particular, it tends to taper off once people are making um, about $75,000 in the United States money ceases to have, additional money ceases to have any measurable impact on people's day-to-day positive feelings. Now, people do evaluate their lives more positively. So people who are asked, you know, how satisfied they are with their lives overall, if they're making $5 million, they do provide a somewhat higher number than people making, you know, a measly $100,000. But if you look at how much they're laughing, smiling, and enjoying the day, the million dollars, the five million dollars, doesn't make any difference over and above, say, a hundred thousand dollars.
0: why is that? Why is that something that is so hard to believe? Why is that doesn't feel correct intuitively?
1: Right. Well, I think part of it is that when we imagine having more money, we naturally imagine what our own life would be like if we suddenly woke up, say, as millionaires. Like, if you tomorrow increased my salary to be a million dollars a year, I would be happier. You know, I'm not wrong about that. I would be happier. It's just that I'd get used to it. You know, I'd reshape my life to be the life of a millionaire. And then that would just become my life. And I'd still have the problem that like, you know, I got in a fight with my friend or my husband hasn't done the dishes. Really, it's usually me that hasn't done the dishes. But in any case, all the little problems of daily life, they're often still there. And those end up the sort of little small things that happen to us on a daily basis can end up shaping our happiness, you know, in more powerful ways than we expect while these basic life conditions like how much money we're making tend to fade into the background a bit.
0: It reminds me, Daniel Gilbert writes about the uh, psychological immune system, how you sort of uh, a really terrible life event, you will eventually become acclimated to it and you will return to sort of a homeostasis of happiness. So I'm, and I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it works in the other direction as well. Even if you, uh, if you were, as your wealth increases way past $75,000 a year, is that correct?
1: It absolutely works in the other direction. And in fact, Uh, you know, our capacity to get over negative events and return to our baseline levels of happiness is a wonderful thing. But it turns out that our capacity to get over positive events and return to our baseline level of happiness is actually even stronger. So we can find a few negative events that people don't completely adapt to. We're still looking for a positive event that people don't completely adapt to eventually.
0: So, um, one of the central ideas in your book is that we should shift away from buying things to buying experiences, even if those experiences turn out to be short or, um, even if those experiences kind of turn to be sort of bad. And that seems weird because things are so tangible and they last and they, they, they're around us and we can see the evidence of our purchase and experiences are ephemeral and they just sort of float away back into memory. Why is it that we should be buying experiences instead of things?
1: Well, for one thing, experiences tend to bring us closer to other people, uh, whereas material things are often enjoyed alone. And it turns out that probably the single most important thing for happiness is our connections with other people. Um, So, you know, uh, if you think back on the last trip that you went on or the last, you know, special meal that you enjoyed, you probably were with somebody else you know, most likely someone else that you care about. Whereas, you know, if I buy myself a pair of new shoes or something, I'm going to notice those shoes. I may be surprised by how little other people notice those shoes. Um, and those shoes are not going to bring me closer to the loved ones around me.
0: And could you speak a little bit about how it doesn't really matter how long the experience lasts, or even if it's like incredibly great, just can cons- but compared to a thing, it does seem to um, beat it out for overall happiness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, particularly when we look back on an experience, and looking back on an experience is actually a very valuable source of happiness. Our memories can provide us with sources of happiness, even when we're sitting on a crowded subway. When we look back on an experience, the length of that experience has very little bearing on our sort of uh, feelings of happiness that we get from it or our satisfaction with it. What seems to matter uh, perhaps the most is the kind of peak level of happiness. Um, So, for example, I went to – I was lucky enough while I was working on this book to go spend a month in Bali, which I recommend as a place to go (laughs) write a book. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, we were really excited that we got to spend a whole month there. But I think, you know, the length of that trip – Uh, meant that a lot of the days kind of blurred together. Um, But when I look back on the trip, what really matters to me are those sort of like peak experiences, some of the very best things uh, that I did. The length of the trip, you know, doesn't really um, uh, make a big difference to me when I look back and think about the uh, sort of uh, happiness that it gave me.
0: So, I want to read you a uh, review in, on Amazon that uh, completely misses the point of your entire book, um, and I'm not sure that, I'm not sure this person read your book, uh, but they definitely wanted to comment on it. this is your uh, this is your only one-star review. Uh, and uh, I would like to hear your rebuttal. Uh, okay, this is fantastic. And I, I kind of imagine this is uh, the guy from American Psycho when I'm reading this. I live in a comfortable four thousand square feet house and drive a porsche. I do enjoy every moment in my house and in my car. I am happier with material things than buying experiences. And for me, living in a comfortable home is much better than traveling and more fun. I disagree with the author's premise that experiences make you happier than material things. Elizabeth Dunn, your rebuttal.
1: Okay. Well, first off, um, you know, I I would just be a little humble here and say that our, you know, we probably deserve the occasional one-star review because our (laughs) advice is not going to work for everybody. Certainly people vary in terms of, you know, what pleases them. And I don't think as scientists, we should get too overconfident in our own research. Now that said, if you look across Uh, Most people, on average, uh, they do tend to get more happiness from buying experiences than from buying material things. The problem with being any one person is that you don't necessarily get to do an experiment on yourself. So what I would like to do, if I could take my one-star reviewer and turn him into my own experiment, would be to sell his Porsche, perhaps sell his home, move him into a more basic uh, house and with a more basic car, see how his happiness does. My guess is that it actually... Might go down a little bit initially, but perhaps wouldn't plummet. Um, And then I'd like to take that money from those sales and see what I could do with it uh, to perhaps make him happier than he was before. And in particular, I would uh, think about perhaps buying him some experiences, maybe putting him on a plane for a bit, um, maybe somewhere without internet access, uh, and giving him a chance to uh, try out this principle, because I think um, it's very hard, actually, for us to figure out what would maximize our happiness because we don't necessarily get to explore, you know, every road not traveled to go back in time and you know divide ourselves and see how happy we would have been had we used our money in some fundamentally different way now we as scientists have this rare privilege that we do get to do experiments and we can study a whole bunch of people and try to sort of extract these regularities that are very hard for people to see when they just examine their own individual experience
0: that was excellent Um, and i will say i will say that almost all of your reviews are five-star reviews that was uh (laughs) i I, I didn't mean to spring that on you in any weird
1: way no it's fun i love it that's great
0: um (laughs) That uh, segue is great. And you have a section of the book about buying treats, um, and you spend a lot of time uh, uh, talking about Sarah Silverman's mantra. And I, I love this section of the book, and it speaks directly to what this uh, commenter was saying on Amazon. He said, "Because you say that buying houses and nice cars and expensive televisions uh, really don't bring the happiness we expect them to." Um, could you explain why we tend to buy the things that we, those sort of things, even though those are the things that do not provide the happiness we expect
1: yeah so I mean one challenge here is that um, when we're faced with a purchase you know say um, buying something like a fancy new TV Um, it's really easy to get sucked into all of the concrete features that a product offers. I find this happening to myself. I was recently shopping for a new laptop and I went in, like I'm going to buy one of those $300 laptops and I am not spending more than $300 because I just want to use this computer for like Netflix and iTunes. So that's all I'm going to do. And this 16 year old salesman, (laughs) like almost talked me into buying a computer that was twice as much. And it's because he showed me, wow, gosh, for just a little more money, I can get this many more gigs and (laughs) this much more RAM. And that appeals to our desire to kind of compare products, to see the quantitative differences between features that really do stand out when we compare products side by side. Um, But that can kind of lead us to end up spending all our money on stuff that might not make a big difference for our happiness.
0: And, you know, when you compare in the store, you're comparing things back and forth, but when you ever when it get, goes in your home, it just becomes the thing, you know, if you're comparing between two beds and you can go back and forth, uh, between this one is this good. This one has these features, this one costs this much, but once it's in your house, you don't think about all the other beds in the world anymore.
1: Exactly. I mean, for me, the, the um, most perhaps painful example is uh, hardwood floors. When we moved into our condo, it was like uh, the the flooring was basically this uh, incredibly ugly pink carpet uh, with like, I think, stains and like smoke and embedded in it. So we, we had to tear it out. That was kind of a given. But then when it came time to replace it with hardwood floors, my husband and I became obsessed with comparing hardwood floors. Like, I can't tell you the number of hours we spent in hardwood floor showrooms, which is just not where you should be spending your Saturday. But you know, we were, I, and I to this day can walk into a house and instantly recognize the, like, is this, you know, um, maple or walnut or bamboo or whatever. And it just, and, you, and then you become more obsessed. Like you notice the different stains on the maple and so forth. But for me, and so we spent a ridiculous amount of time picking out our hardwood floor. We got sucked into like buying the hardest hardwood that we could get, blah, blah, blah. And now it's really just the ground beneath my feet. I walk across my house and do not notice what our floors look
0: like. Mm-hmm. I can totally attest to that. Anyone who's bought an iPhone or uh, I just got a Pebble uh, smartwatch and uh, it's now just a watch. But uh, <laughs> we uh, we become uh, acclimated to things like smells. It's um, it's a weird, peculiar thing. Good most of the time, but not. Um, we're very bad at predicting what's going to make us happy. And um, what what is it about uh, money in particular? Why are we so bad at spending money?
1: Well, there's a sort of bonus problem that comes along with money. So aside from just the general challenges associated with figuring out what makes us happy, money can actually push us in the wrong direction. So uh, research by Kathleen Boss and her colleagues has shown that when people are even just exposed to reminders of money, something as simple as a screensaver that has dollar bills on it, Just being reminded of money makes people want to look out for their own interests and makes them really want to avoid doing anything to help other people. So just thinking about money can kind of orient us toward our own needs and goals and make us really want to just stay separate from other people. And in fact, we should do the opposite if we want to be happy. To be happy, you really want to connect with others, even do things to help other people. But just thinking about money is already sort of pushing you off in the wrong direction.
0: Have we always been that way or is this a is this a recent thing? How how does the the um the focus on money as a as a object and as a way of thinking about the world? How has that changed uh through eras and through cultures?
1: You know, it's a great question. Unfortunately, people haven't um, had necessarily the research tools or asked the research question for for more than about five years. So uh, oh, this oh. research is quite new. So it's, it's hard to know, you know, if this idea was there, um, you know, if, if the effects of being exposed to money would have been the same, say, you know, 500 years ago. I mean, the associations that people had with money are bound to differ across time and in different cultures. I do know that, You know, if we look uh, currently, the effects that have been seen uh, in North America do replicate around the world, whereby, you know, I don't think people have been tested in every country, but certainly in, you know, multiple cultures that differ quite a bit, um, exposing people to their own local currency uh, seems to sort of make people feel like they're self-sufficient. They can get what they need on their own and they don't really want to rely on or be relied uh, uh, relied on by other people.
0: Okay, so in the section on buying treats, you focus on the idea that boredom is a relationship killer, and that um, novelty, along with absence, can actually make the heart grow fonder. Could you uh, expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, novelty is something that really uh, excites our emotions, unleashes our uh, potential for happiness, um, and you know one of the problems with long-term relationships is that The person who was once like our new exciting first date becomes our spouse. And then, you know, as wonderful as that person might be, they're no longer offering us that little thrill of novelty. Um, But luckily, it turns out that you can kind of inject that novelty back into um, a relationship. Uh, And in fact, doing something as simple as uh, completing like a wacky obstacle course with your uh, partner can uh, give you this feeling that your relationship is novel and exciting again. So, just sort of doing something novel and exciting with your partner can make you feel like that person is actually new and exciting.
0: And how, and how does that translate into um, advice that you would give on how to spend our money, how to uh, how to purchase things better?
1: Yeah. So. Uh, one thing that I think about with uh, my husband is uh, that, you know, it's worthwhile to um, spend money on something that's like really new and exciting that we could do together. Um, So I'm going to hope that he doesn't listen to this podcast, because if he does, it's going to ruin the (laughs) surprise. But I'm thinking for our five year anniversary of taking him on a hot air balloon ride. Now it's Expensive. it seems kind of indulgent because it's this like thing that costs a lot of money and in two hours it's over and you're left with nothing. Um, But I think you are left with something important and that's this feeling that your relationship is exciting. Um, And doing these kinds of like unexpected, novel, exciting things together uh, can make that lasting difference. But those new exciting things often cost money. And I would argue that it's probably actually money well spent.
0: And that seems to be a a theme throughout your book is that we oftentimes we think things are going to be indulgent and that um, there's some sort of guilt that we'll associate with the thing that we're going to spend a lot of money on. But in retrospect, it always seems like money well spent if it's an experience.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, people just seem um, a little less susceptible to experiencing guilt from, uh, splurging on an experience than they, uh, think they would. So, you know, often the pleasure of doing something really fun, like, um, going for a spa day or going out, out to dinner for no reason can actually kind of overwhelm the guilt that we expected to experience.
0: Now, before we run out of time, I really want to get into, uh, another one of my favorite debunkings in the book. And that is that, uh, you talk about how the slow movement is, uh, probably based on the evidence, mostly bunk. Um, and that we feel busier, but we actually have more leisure time than in previous decades. I think you said that, um, we have four more hours leisure than people in the 1960s. So why is it then that we feel like we have less uh, time to spend on things we enjoy?
1: Well, one sort of surprising reason, uh, seems to be that, uh, Our time is worth more money than it used to be. Now, this is true both looking across time. So, um, uh, you know, now our time is worth more money than it would have been in, say, the 1970s. It's also the case that for any one individual, as you get older, your time typically becomes worth more money than it was, you know, when you were younger. Um, and so this gives us the experience both, you know, growing older and across, also looking across generations that time has become more valuable. Now, when something is valuable we tend to perceive that it's scarce, Scarce, scarcity and value are linked tightly in our minds. And so just, you know, knowing that your time is valuable can actually make it seem scarce. And so that can leave us with the impression, because time is so valuable, it can leave us with the impression that um, we're pressed for time, that we have less time than we once did. I totally thought this was true. And I was like, oh, slow movement, that's really cool. And then I started looking at the research and realizing, wow, actually, you know, the, the basic assumption that that movement is based on that, like we're busier than we used to be really turns out to be false.
0: And it just, it's so bizarre. Cause it feels, I feel that every day. Like there's mm-hmm. a, but, um, when I, do, we, in the book, you actually recommend take a second and think about all the, to, all the things that you get to do during your work week that people didn't get to do, um, in eras past. And you start to see that you do have more time. It's just the way you're, it's our relationship to the time has changed.
1: Exactly. Right. And, you know, thinking about, I feel like I'm extremely busy, but I forget about all the little bits of free time that I actually take during the day. Like I just, you know, went up to get coffee and bumped into a friend and talked to them for a bit. And, you know, all these little pieces uh, uh, that we build into our day, we may sort of forget about when we're just thinking about how rushed we we all
0: are. And you you straight up in the book bust this uh, notion that time is money. Why is that bad advice?
1: Yeah. So the problem with seeing time as money is that again, it reinforces this idea that our time is so valuable that we can't do anything like, say, give our time away and volunteer. Uh, The more people see their time as money the less likely they are to want to do volunteer work. And in some very new research that we're finding, we we also see that um, when people see time as money, they don't want to do things like even recycle because it's not worth their time. Um, So uh, this is a problem for happiness, uh, particularly because um, when we see time as money, first we feel uh, more pressed for time. We also feel like, you know, disinclined from, say, volunteering. And again, volunteering is actually one of the best activities we can do for our happiness. So giving our time away is a good source of happiness, and yet we don't want to do that when we feel that every minute of our time is a dollar.
0: And... You, in, in all of the uh, in the book, you have these principles: buy experiences, uh, try to make uh, your experiences treats. Don't don't allow yourself to satiate and, and uh, have an overabundance of experiences. Buy time when you can appreciate time. And then there's this really really great uh, piece of advice that is counterintuitive and it goes against the way I know North American culture works, and that is pay now, consume later. Could you explain that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think pretty much everything in our culture pushes us to uh, consume as soon as possible and pay for it as late as possible. But happiness research suggests we'd be better off doing exactly the opposite. Um, So first off, whenever we pay... It's kind of painful, uh, you know, forking over your hard-earned cash for something, especially something that's a little bit expensive, um, uh, can actually provide, can actually produce a feeling of pain that is surprisingly akin to real physical pain. That's going to happen no matter what. But it's better to suck it up and take the pain on the chin right up front, because then you get it out of the way. And then, if you later, if you wait to consume. For example, if you pay for a vacation now and then don't take it till September, you can then enjoy that vacation without that pain of payment hanging over you. In the meantime, uh, while you're waiting for that vacation to roll around, the uh, that waiting time can actually provide a sort of uh, free source of pleasure in the form of anticipation.
0: And, and you actually say that pre-ordering things or paying for things way in advance, uh, whether it's like a DVD or it's uh or like you said just now a vacation that will increase the happiness we have later on.
1: Exactly, right. So that's a very sort of simple way even with a small purchase um uh ordering say, you know, a book before it becomes available. For example, um uh one of my favorite authors had a new book coming out and it wasn't going to be available for a month, so I pre-ordered it, paid for it, and then it just showed up on my Kindle like a free surprise. A month later, I completely forgotten that I bought it, and it was like literally like there was this gift waiting for me of this book by my favorite author that had already been long long ago paid for, and just felt like this you know free treat.
0: And so, why is it then that we are so uh, why are credit cards so powerful, so alluring? Why are they, why are credit card companies so successful at getting us to use money in the way that they want us to use it?
1: Because anything that allows us to delay pain is going to be attractive. So, you know, if I say to you, um, I want to, you know, um, extract a tooth of yours, I can do it right now or we can do it in five years you're probably going to choose the five years, right? There's actually research showing that we see um, our future selves kind of like we see other people. We don't entirely believe that the me of, you know, a year from now is really the me of today. Um, So it's almost like I can enjoy this, you know, wonderful dinner and that other girl, you know, Liz of six months from now can deal with paying for
0: it. Yeah. But the, but really the opposite is true. We can, uh, if we pay now, consume later. We will be happier. Um, and so, right.
1: I mean, the thing is, the key, the key is really getting payment and consumption. And but most people do that by uh, consuming first and paying for it later. We just argue people should do the
0: opposite. And how how does debt affect our, our overall happiness compared to things like earning money and saving money?
1: Yeah. Debt is like a dead weight for happiness. It's really probably, um, the first advice that I would give anybody is if if you've got debt, pay that off. You know, I'm not talking about say, um, a mortgage or something like that, but the kind of debt that, um, hangs over our heads, like credit card debt, um, paying that off is probably the single best thing we could do for our happiness. Savings are also good for happiness on the flip side, but debt is a bigger drag on happiness than savings are a boon.
0: Your research suggests there are ways that we can take and shift our focus when we go out there in the world. uh, As soon as you leave this podcast and you're going to buy things and you can shift your focus away from um, considering those material goods into potential experiences. How can we do that?
1: Uh, Well, um, I think one way to do it is to apply that pay now, consume later principle. So it turns out it's easier to appreciate the value of experiences when we're um, buying for our future selves. So it's easier to see the kind of abstract benefits of inexperience relative to the sort of more concrete offerings of a material thing uh, when we're thinking about the future. So the future kind of makes us like astronauts, We like astronauts see the earth from space and kind of see the, you know, the big picture, basically the, uh, oceans and the land masses, but not the trees. Uh, Just like that, when we think about our future selves, we think about the future, uh, it's easier for us to see those broad abstract features. And that makes it easier for us to appreciate the value of buying experiences. Awesome.
0: So um, if people want to keep up with you, where can they find you on the internet?
1: Uh, Well, if they Google my name, I'm luckily the first person that pops up usually so um that's a good place to start i have a uh, website that's part of the university of british columbia where i'm a professor Uh, and they can also check out um simon and schuster's webpage for our book happy money
0: and what are you and what are you working on right now what is your current research
1: uh, well, some of my current research is actually looking at how we can flip the philanthropy switch and turn the entrepreneurs of today into the Warren Buffetts of tomorrow. Uh, so, we've in my previous research, we found that spending money on others is a good route to happiness. Now, we want to find out how to get people to do that more.
0: That is fantastic. And as a before we part, what is would you say is the number one misconception when it comes to spending money?
1: Who. Number one misconception. I think that the number one misconception about money is that having more of it will make us happier. And we would suggest that spending it differently may be the best route to greater happiness. So forget about earning more. Think about changing the way you spend what you've got.
0: Wow. That was so good. The, um, you can learn about all that in this book. And I think it's the most I've ever highlighted in any book that I've read. Uh, I was glad I was reading it on Kindle because I was just like, that's insane. That's amazing. That's fascinating. I had to look that up somewhere else. I oh, can't believe that's true. And uh, I love it very much. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real treat.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs>
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart Podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. And head to you are not so smart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to any or all of the previous episodes of this show. You can find links to everything I talked about today at you are not so smart.com, and you can go there to learn more about both of my books and all the other cool stuff you can do: merchandise, cookies all sorts of cool things if you would like to send a cookie recipe to david at you are not so smart.com please do that and then if i bake your cookie and i eat it on the air i will send you a signed copy of one of those books follow you are not so smart on facebook or on twitter or on google plus as long as that lasts and on twitter it's at not smart blog and i am at david mcraney the opening music is clash by caravan palace and the music beds are by drew garraway and banjo apocalypse